Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Mac World, May 1990. Behind Locked Doors. Manufacturing the Macintosh, by Cheryl England Spencer. I was shocked to learn of Cheryl's passing in September of 2022 at just 61 years young. Cheryl, thank you for giving us all a little hope when the Macintosh community needed it most. A time when they called it broken transport, not open transport. When QuickDraw GX and OpenDoc were huge, buggy, slow, largely unsupported, but still also somehow the future. And when Copeland was going to solve all our problems any day now, no, really. On the publishing side, there was also evidence of strong, continued support for Apple. In fact, one company announced a brand new Mac magazine. Imagine Publishing used the Macworld Expo to launch Mac Addict. The publisher is Cheryl England. A lot of people told us we were really crazy for starting this magazine. A lot of people said, well, you know, good luck. And there's a lot of people out there saying, oh, the Mac is dead. Are you crazy? Face up to reality. Apple is dead. Um, we certainly don't think so. We're going to have definitely an attitude. We love the Mac, and we're not afraid to say we love the Mac, and we think PCs and Windows suck. Um, if that offends you, this is not your magazine. Apple was on its deathbed. And Cheryl decided to make a business out of throwing it the biggest farewell party she could. You will always live on in our hearts, Cheryl. When the Macintosh 2CX was first introduced, Jean-Louis Gasset engaged in a brief display of showmanship. By personally assembling the computer in less than a minute, he demonstrated just how easy it is to take apart and put together the 2CX. This is the, uh, the logic board that goes into the, uh, into the case. I'll put that in the bottom case and it drops into the computer here. Then the storage uh, subsystem with the floppy at the bottom and the hard disk at uh, the top. So we have the power connector in. We have one cable for the uh, floppy drive. Don't try this at home. Listen, this is the power module drops in place. This is the uh, Nubus 8-bit video card that drops in here. And we have a fully assembled Macintosh uh, 2CX uh, here. And um, I will see if it works. Keyboard and mouse. Well, we have a uh, liftoff, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. The demonstration received a lot of press, but the gist of the commentary was, oh, a cute trick. Few people realized its significance. No other computer manufacturer, not Sun, not IBM, not even Next, with its shiny automated board assembly line that Steve Jobs likes to flaunt, has developed a machine that's as easy to assemble. Check the show notes for that factory tour. What Gasset's stunt really signaled is that Apple has completely changed the way it makes computers. After two sequestered years, Apple is finally starting to crack open the doors of its manufacturing facilities. We're seeing that the pace of innovation in Apple's factories has been lightning fast during the last couple of years. Leading-edge robots that were the pride and joy of Apple's manufacturing facilities two years ago have already been phased out. Assembly lines have been adapted to the newer Macintoshes, and in the six months between my last visit to the Fremont factory and the publication of this article, the Macs being assembled in each of the buildings will have been reshuffled once again, with even more automation incorporated into the process. 
Many of these changes are occurring because Apple realizes just how important the manufacturing process is. If the company is to continue to expand, it must be able to introduce high-quality products on a worldwide scale within the shortest possible amount of time. In the fiercely competitive personal computer market, Apple considers technological innovation its key advantage. But Apple can't exercise this advantage if it can't bring new designs quickly to the marketplace. Yesterday's innovation is little more than yesterday's news. To keep pace with Apple's design achievements, manufacturing must accomplish four key objectives. 1. From the outset, products must be designed so that they are easy to manufacture. 2. For reliability, components must be standardized. 3. Automation must be carefully implemented. And 4. Factories must be flexible enough to adapt to changing product configurations. With these considerations in mind, I examined the insides of two Apple factories, Fremont, California's state-of-the-art plant and the Singapore plant. What follows is a behind-the-scenes peek at what Apple has been so quietly hiding behind locked factory doors. Form and Function only a few miles from Apple's Cupertino, California headquarters sits the Fremont factory, five buildings that house 512,000 square feet of manufacturing space. About half of the computers Apple produces come from here, as well as a majority of Apple's peripherals, such as monitors, printers, and scanners. Two other manufacturing facilities, one in Singapore and one in Cork, Ireland, churn out the rest of Apple's products. The Fremont factory manufactures products for the United States and Canada and serves as a testbed for new products. The Singapore facility produces Macintosh SEs and SE30s for the Pacific region and Macintosh Pluses and Apple IIs for both the Pacific and the United States. The factory in Ireland produces all products for 15 European countries. One thing that all of these manufacturing facilities have in common is that their efficiency depends heavily on how well the Mac is designed, a fact that Apple factory workers have witnessed firsthand. The Macintosh 2 was a nightmare, says Matt Carter, Apple's former production engineering manager. We would try to surface mount components, and the board would pop and break. If anything went wrong, we had to take the whole machine apart to fix it. Similarly, the first Macintosh SE proved troublesome. For instance, it has nine fasteners of several different types. On an assembly line, workers must place each screw, pull down the appropriate electric screwdriver from where it hangs above them, and then drive in the screw. To further complicate matters, workers must flip the Macintosh SE's chassis as it moves to various assembly stations. Viewed from above, the assembly line is a buzz of organized and rhythmic, but wasted, motion. Had this inefficiency continued, Apple would not have been able to introduce four new Macs last year, nor would its factories have come close to meeting demand for the new products. Industry experts agree that Apple's troubles in meeting initial demand for the Macintosh Portable were due to a shortage of the active matrix display. Recognizing that streamlining production would be essential to maintaining market share, Apple reorganized so that engineering, manufacturing, and product marketing were all in the same group. The tighter focus and greater cooperation between departments worked. 
the Macintosh SE30 and Macintosh 2X contain 80% surface mount components and 20% through-hole components. A complete reversal from earlier Macs that used only 20% surface mount components. Surface mount components require less board space and less power and work at higher speeds than through-hole components. They're also easier for machines to place correctly. But it's on the newest Macs that Apple's design awareness really pays off. Just take a look back at the assembly lines. The Macintosh 2CX and 2CI line seems almost languid in comparison to the Macintosh SE line. All of the parts snap in easily. The whir of the screwdrivers is almost absent. From a distance, the visitor is under the illusion that the pace of production is much slower here. This perception is misleading. The Macintosh 2CX is 38% faster to manufacture than the Macintosh SE, even though the machines have a similar number of components, not counting the SE's monitor. The faster assembly is due to the Macintosh 2CX's snap-in parts, surface-mounted chips, and Apple's ability to integrate more functionality into fewer chips. The fact that the Macintosh 2CX, the more capable, albeit more expensive, machine, requires so much less time to make than the SE illustrates the benefits of Apple's manufacturing advances. Recently, however, a slight pall was cast over some of the advances. Apple reorganized once again, this time putting engineering in a group separate from manufacturing and marketing. It remains to be seen whether top Apple executives learned their lesson with the manufacturing mishaps of the SE and II, and whether the separate manufacturing and engineering groups will cooperate effectively. Parts is parts. Not only must Apple worry about the number of components a Mac has and how easy they are to insert, the company must also ensure that the components are top quality. When Apple first began producing Macs, Components often did not come in consistent sizes. In the early days, says Michael Mickel, a robotics expert and one-time Apple engineer, a big problem was standardization of components. We'd have to make changes, things like enlarging the holes in the board, to allow for variations, end quote. But as tolerances become tighter on boards, Apple can no longer fudge specifications that way. It must have more control over the sizes of parts. Although the specifications remain standard worldwide, each Apple factory buys its components from local suppliers. For Apple Computer Singapore, quality components are not an issue. At the Fremont factory, however, relationships with suppliers must constantly be monitored. While most overseas consumer-manufacturer relationships are congenial, U.S. parts suppliers and manufacturers have traditionally fought each other. Parts suppliers don't want to invest additional time and money to meet manufacturers' special specifications. The manufacturers don't want to fully reveal their future plans. And both sides are pushed by investors to improve their short-term profits. Auto insertion machines made in the U.S. come with on-the-fly parts verification, says Matt Carter, the engineer who ran all operations in the original Fremont factory. The Japanese machines don't. So when we were purchasing some equipment from a Japanese vendor, we requested a verification facility. Their response was, Why? Don't you get good parts from your suppliers? Have you heard the old joke about Japanese manufacturing? I include this out of respect for Japan's dedication to quality and integrity, so don't write in. IBM decided to have some parts manufactured in Japan as a trial, 
In their specifications, they established IBM would accept three defective parts per 10,000. Some weeks later, a shipment of parts arrived from Japan, accompanied by a letter. It read, We Japanese people have a hard time understanding North American business practices, but the three defective parts per 10,000 have been separately manufactured and included in the consignment. We hope this pleases you. Apple devotes a lot of energy to overcoming the traditional supplier-manufacturer antagonism. Over the years, the company has developed better-than-usual relationships with its vendors, partially because suppliers who accommodate Apple's requests receive a larger share of the company's business. Apple also spells out its quality requirements in supplier contracts and uses a supplier certification program so that some suppliers can ship parts directly to stock, bypassing the time-consuming test process. Still, Fremont tests many more components than does Apple Computer Singapore, which tests fewer than 30% of its components. As long as the lack of cooperation between manufacturers and suppliers continues, Apple will have an uphill battle in Fremont. And this problem wasn't unique to Apple. Synthesizer pioneer Dave Smith of Sequential Circuits and Dave Smith Instruments had this to say about manufacturing and suppliers. It's interesting competing with the Japanese. I've probably been to Japan 25 times. And when you see how they work together over there, you can kind of see how they, these products end up coming out so well. In Japan, when you work with a vendor, say you need some metalwork made or you want some cables made, the company that's going to make these for you will quite often be a tiny company that uh, you help support. They'll come in and they help you design the product. And they say, okay, well, we could build this little wire thing for you and we could use this connector because this is a little cheaper. And if we build it this way, it can cost less and work better, be more reliable. And they basically work with you as a partner to do this. Whereas at the same time, in the United States, for a company our size, if we wanted to design something, we'd have to fight with people to get them to sell to us. We'd say, please, we want to buy some wires and some cables from you. Will you do that? Well, I don't know. How big are you? What do you want to buy? What do you want? You know, and, and it was a fight. It was a battle as opposed to a partnership. And I think, think that was a major part of why they can do so much better reliability-wise and price-wise than we could. When did the Fremont factory shut down? 2004, just after iTunes was ported to Windows and the iPod really began taking off. And this is how, at least in my imagination, while none of us were looking, we slowly stopped manufacturing or even just assembling things in North America. Grappling with Robots Ever since automation first appeared, Social commentators have painted a vision of a useless workforce displaced by the very machines that they created. Apple has a history of automating as much of the logic board assembly as possible, not because the company is trying to eliminate workers, but because automation increases the Mac's reliability. Chips are becoming smaller. The smaller they get, the harder they are to place accurately and quickly by hand. It also becomes easier to break or bend leads. Currently, about 5% of the Macintosh Portable's components are oddly shaped enough that they must be placed by hand. The Macintosh 2CX and 2CI have an even better average, requiring only 1% of their components to be placed by hand. Still, Apple is readying six more robots to take over even more of the manual work. Even if the board assembly area were fully automated, 
people would still be needed to babysit the machines. The robots that place components on the boards sometimes have trouble picking up a recalcitrant component. Other times, they misplace components, creating what looks like a log jam of chips on the board. Boards run into trouble in other places, too. For instance, getting stuck in the wave soldering machine. When the software that runs these machines detects a problem, it sets off a red police car light that beeps and flashes until an operator comes to the machine's rescue. If the idea that automation will eliminate the need for workers is a myth, the idea that robots will lead to a lights-out factory where machines work unattended in a dark room, stamping out identical products day after day, is an even bigger myth. Steve Jobs, in 1988, introducing the next cube to the public for the first time. It's the most beautiful printed circuit board I've ever seen in my life. Now, there's one more fact about this board we want to share with you today. It's built completely untouched by human hands in Next's automated factory in Fremont, California. We realized that to achieve the quality levels we wanted to, the reliability, and the volume levels that we think the market is going to demand that we meet, that we had to automate the entire process. In The Second Coming of Steve Jobs, Alan Deutschman wrote of the next factory, Steve had envisioned his factory producing a billion dollars worth of computers a year. A few PhDs would watch from the sidelines while the machines would be fabricated without ever being touched by humans. But even at the rate of mere hundreds a year, not hundreds of thousands, the automation never worked very well and human hands were everywhere. End quote. But let's quantify that. This is John Rubinstein, the driving force behind Apple's hardware from the turnaround of 97 to 2006 who was also involved in manufacturing at Next. In any case, so, so back to Next. So yes, I mean, Next was a shit show, right? I mean, it was just total chaos. They couldn't sell anything, you know. It was, it was a great product, but it was never finished. Nothing was ever finished. Because Steve was always pushing stuff out the door before it was ready. Is that on the hardware side? Or everything. The, or the everything. Software? The software wasn't ready. The hardware wasn't ready. Nothing okay. was ready. And, you know, we had this factory in Fremont that was the world's best factory at building a single-sided board of this exact dimension. And if it was anything else, it was terrible factory. That was a real showpiece. Of course. It, it was that was at, Steve's pride and joy. Yes. Yeah, it was terrible. Because deploying that level of robotics is pretty unusual for that time outside of Japan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, no, it was very impressive for a board this size, exactly this size, right. single-sided, which is not where the world was going. In our second-generation products, they weren't that size and they weren't single-sided. And it was a real problem. You know, and we weren't doing high volume. Every now and then, someone would push a button, turn on the factory, it would spit out a bunch of these and then they turn off the button and that would be it for a while. As far as I can tell, Steve Jobs loved the idea of unmanned factories. Here's a clip from the Power Mac G5 launch at WWDC 2003. And we're calling it the G5. Now, the G5 has some amazing properties. And IBM has done a phenomenal job on this. And they also happen to have the world's most advanced chip fabrication on the planet. 58 million transistors, I don't know how they count them. <laughs> and they build it in a $3 billion state-of-the-art semiconductor fabrication facility in Fishkill, New York, built in the USA. Now, this is what it's like. This is a city down there in the most advanced semiconductor factory in the world. 
where robots move the wafers around. There are no people getting anywhere near these wafers. And shortly after that, he rolls the standard Apple product marketing video. And though you may have to go frame by frame, there are clearly two humans present in the factory. To be fair, they're not touching wafers, but they are there. In Japan, where such factories exist to produce high-volume, low-cost items such as televisions and VCRs, many of the robots are simply machines that use actuators to do one thing reliably. Although Apple designs some of these simple types of machines for use in its factories, many of Apple's robots are much more complex and much more flexible. These machines consist of an arm mounted on a table. At the end of the arm is a gripping device, which can adapt to small changes in the size and shape of components. Operators can program robots to change tools so that instead of needing a different robot for each component, one for cams, one for VLSI chips, for example, the same robot can place a variety of parts on a board before sending it on to the next step. Even better, operators can reprogram the robots to assemble new boards or to switch from one type of board to another as consumer demand changes. For instance, because all Apple boards come in one of two widths, 8 inches or 12 inches, all products requiring the same size board can be manufactured on the same line. At Fremont, for example, where there are 12 assembly lines that can produce Macintosh logic boards, the number that are producing Macs versus the number that are producing other products, such as LaserWriter boards, varies from day to day and even from shift to shift. Lining up for change. Although flexibility is important at the board level, it becomes critical during the final product assembly. Not only must each assembly line be able to produce different products, but it must also be able to produce different configurations of those products quickly. On any given day, for instance, Apple may need to produce Macintosh portables, Macintosh 2CX models with only a single floppy drive, and 2CXs with a hard disk and a floppy drive. Changing the assembly lines to accommodate different machines or different configurations can take anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours. Changing from Macs with 40 meg hard disks to Macs with 80 meg hard disks is almost a real-time event, says Mike Campy, director of Fremont Manufacturing. Other changes can be done between shifts. If a change requires retooling and fixtures, it can take from one hour to half a day. Fremont has become fast and flexible enough that it can make custom configurations for major customers without hampering its ability to meet normal product demand. Once a Mac is configured, a scanner reads a barcode that has been attached to the Mac since step one and sends it down to the proper conveyor lane. When enough Macs of a given configuration are made, those Macs are forwarded to a giant machine that automatically boxes them and spins shrink wrap over the whole package. These boxes are loaded directly into a truck, ready for delivery. This type of tracking and sorting process has to be exact, especially in the cork factory, which must not only produce the standard Mac configurations, but also produce each configuration in 17 languages. Two years ago, Apple shipped 350 configurations worldwide, says Fred Forsyth, vice president of worldwide manufacturing at Apple. This year, 1989, Apple shipped 1,200 configurations, and most of those are out of cork. Personal Attention After spending several days in Apple's factories, watching Macs grow from bare boards to shrink-wrapped boxes, 
What remains most vivid is not the robots or the intricately designed system, for these will change yet again by the time I come back. Instead, it's the image of the people who make the factory work. Employees hand-inspect each board under a magnifying glass as it comes off the assembly line. They adjust monitors by hand, and they wipe off the Mac's plastic case before it is packed. In spite of the criticism Apple deservedly receives for its short warranty, Apple for many years had only a 90-day warranty. To quote Guy Kawasaki in the Macintosh way, Exercise. A man went to a Hyundai dealership and bought a car. When he got home, he read his manual and found out that his $8,000 car had a 36,000-mile, 36-month warranty. Later, he went to an Apple dealer and bought a Macintosh 2 and a LaserWriter 2 NTX for $10,000. When he got home, he read his manual and found out that his new computer equipment had a 90-day warranty. What could explain this? A. A car is driven every day, it is subject to road wear, rain, sleet, and snow, and it has thousands of moving parts. A computer sits on a desk. B. The finance department at Apple calculated that earnings would go down if Apple extended the warranty period. C. The sales department of Apple has been unable to prove that extending the warranty period would lead to more sales. Or D. Hyundai cars are made better than Apple computers. In spite of the criticism Apple deservedly receives for its short warranty, the company still cares about its products. That care is reflected in the way Apple treats the people who so directly affect the quality of the Mac. One of Apple's most successful experiments occurred during production of the Macintosh 2CX. A specially trained group of people, nicknamed Team Avanti, took responsibility for planning production schedules, worked with purchasing to solve supply problems, and gave their input on how easy the new design was to assemble. Even outside Team Avanti, Apple is training its workers to interact directly with people other than their direct supervisors, frequently cutting through layers of management overhead. Typically, if there's a problem with the part, the operator gets the industrial engineer, who then goes to purchasing. Purchasing then goes to the vendor, says Campy. In some cases now, the operator goes directly to the vendor. Apple long ago discovered that caring people are the driving force behind any innovation or advancement. The company's manufacturing arm continues to embody that core principle, while at the same time moving ahead to implement clean product design, quality parts, automation, and manufacturing flexibility. It is the degree to which Apple is able to coordinate these concerns that will determine the company's impact during the coming decade. Don't you wish you could see what it was like inside these factories in 1990? You can! This article is full of pictures with detailed captions. Check the show notes for a link to Macworld May 1990. And Apple itself commissioned a 15-minute documentary showcasing all the operations you just heard about. It's not much to listen to. Logistics personnel remove material from its shipping containers, count it, and place it in a storage bin called a tote. Then moves toward the automated storage and retrieval system known as the ASRS. At this stage, the Automatic Guided Vehicle, or AGV. But you must see it. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories, 
or join the very quiet Discord server for this podcast at www.macfolkloreradio.com.